Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. Welcome to the McEnroy and Wood Lecture. Uh, we'd like to say that McEnroy and Wood have been a fantastic sponsor uh, in their first year for the Borders Book Festival. Absolutely superb. We worked together at Lennox Love, and it's great to recreate that relationship. And so thank you very much indeed to Mac Wood. And I'd like also, yes, indeed. We couldn't, we couldn't do it without Bailey Gifford, without Macwood, and without our other sponsors, so thank you. And I'd like to bring onto the stage to introduce this year's lecturer, the chief executive of McEnroy and Wood. His name is Tim Wood, and I always like it that the CEO has got his name on the front of the shop. <laughs> Please welcome Tim Wood. Well, firstly, I'd just like to say a very warm welcome to the McEnroy and Wood lecture this afternoon. It gives me great pleasure to introduce our speaker um, today. I've got to say the feeling I've got for our speaker today is one of fear. Every morning during the financial crisis, I used to wake up and listen with dread to the radio and the latest financial disaster which he had uncovered. He is one of the world's greatest investigative journalists in the financial sector. His ability to take hugely complex financial situations and turn them into something that we can all understand is second to none. Above all, he really understands what matters. Educated at Balliol College, Oxford, he has been the political editor of ITV, economics and business editor of BBC News, political editor and financial editor of the Financial Times, as well as for working for or contributing to the Sunday Telegraph, Independent on Sunday, and the Sunday Times. He's also known for his own political discussion show, Peston on Sunday. I think it's safe to say he's at his best on Sundays. <laughs> he's also won numerous awards for his work. WTF, the latest of his four books, is described by the Financial Times as richly argued and brilliantly written a deeply thoughtful analysis that should be mandatory reading for anyone seeking to understand where we have gone wrong. I think it's safe to assume that the title doesn't stand for wasn't that funny. <laughs> However, unlike so many, it offers solutions to mend the terrible fractures in our society. A man of many talents as journalist, author, news and TV presenter, we are lucky to hear him this afternoon. My lords, ladies and gentlemen, please give a very warm welcome to Robert Peston. Uh, uh, well, uh, lovely to see you all. It's great to be what I think of as a proper book festival rather than one of those sort of wannabe pop festivals which so many of you Johnny come lately have, uh, have become. Can I just sort of check, I fear that if you're sort of over there at the back of the, you probably can't see the slides terribly well, can you, can you see them a bit? Yes? Sort of alright? Okay, not, not so much, so you're, you're sort of okay are you? Okay, brilliant, because I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how much to sort of describe what's going on, but I'll, I'll assume, shout out if you don't understand or you can't, you can't sort of get what's, what's going on. So, as Tim just said, WTF. Now, the really reassuring thing is there are 
don't appear to be many people under 30 in this audience. Um, <laughs> because they all think it stands for something really rude. Um, of course, it stands for where's the fish. Now, um, I'm going to talk a bit about the book, but I do want to give all of you, you know, the odd people in the room who haven't got a copy, I want to give you a, an incentive to buy it later. So there'll be a bit about the book, but there'll also be quite a lot this afternoon about the sort of mess we're in and politically where we are uh, heading. But if, uh, to start, why did I, why did I write this uh, book? And the reason I wrote this book is because... The chair needs moving. Yep, OK, let's do that. Is that better? Well, not for <laughs> no. <laughs> Should we get rid of the chair? I've done all my stage management. I've done all the stage management this afternoon. That's uh, I'm a man, as, as Tim said, of many parts. Um, is that is that better? Yeah. Great. Um, so I wrote the book because on June the twenty third, two thousand and sixteen, something happened which I didn't expect. Uh, the British people voted to leave the European Union. And the reason it was a surprise to me was because as somebody, you know, you've heard that I've been a political editor in the past, a business editor in the past, an economics editor, I've taken a huge interest in what motivates people to vote. And normally, the economics determines how people vote. And I said during the referendum campaign, and I maintain now, that Brexit would make Britain not catastrophically poorer, but a bit poorer. I think the arguments are unanswerable on, on that score. And we'll talk a little bit about why that is later. And normally, British people, people in general, when they're given the chance, don't vote to make themselves poorer. So this book was an attempt by me to examine why millions of British people had made what I thought was not the most rational decision, from my point of view, that they'd ever taken. And the reason I put this picture up is because my dad was a great influence on me. He was an economist, a fine gentleman here. Uh, fortunately, there are people of my generation here, so you'll recognise these magnificent fashions from 1972. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, I think this was probably, I was about 12, this is a, you see those enormous collars, I think this was a mitzvah of, of some point. And the other reason I put it out is because these were the days when we all knew about how to live. And here's my little brother, Ed, age eight, with a glass of wine in his hand. <laughs> now, um, an economic underpinning of this troika. So what the book then goes on to, to explore is not only why Brexit, why Trump, and why Corbyn. And this is a very important part of the explanation. What this shows is the path of the British economy, GDP, national income, since that great crash of 2008, and also since previous recessions since the war. Now, these lines are how the economy recovered in previous recessions, in the early 90s, in the early 80s, 
uh, uh, and uh, in 73. This line, this purple line, is how we've recovered since 2008. And you can see the pace of recovery has been so much slower. We have, compared to the way that we used to grow out of recessions, grown meaningfully less, such that we are today something between 15 and 20% poorer as a nation than we would have been if previous trends had been followed. Now, I know, like Jim Nochte said to me, there have been a lot of gloomy lectures <laughs> at this year's Borders Festival. So I'm assuming you come prepared. Because <laughs> I'm going to say that actually the picture is even worse than that. <laughs> so among the things that have gone wrong is this collapse in the rate of productivity growth. Now, that productivity growth is one of those sort of words that mean everything to economists and almost nothing to most people. And what productivity is, is the amount that a typical person produces in pounds, shillings and pence in their working lives. And the more output that, it, that we all produce per person, per hour, the more we can afford to pay ourselves. It's a very simple, actually, when explained properly, it's a very simple concept to understand. And productivity was already, to use a technical term, crap in this country before 2008, <laughs> and it's got a lot worse. Um, we were, before 2008, producing a third less per unit of our work than Germany, than America, a quarter less than a country that we, in this country, delight in denigrating, France. Massively more productive than we are. Even less than a country we regard as a basket case, Italy. Uh, you know, as I say, technical term, we've been crap when it comes to productivity, and unfortunately, it's got worse because before 2008, productivity was at least growing at about 2.5% a year, and that allowed us to pay ourselves 2.5% more a year since 2008. Now, these are all the different forecasts, these yellow lines are all the different forecasts that the government made of how it expected productivity to increase since that crash of 2008. And all their forecasts about what they could afford to spend and all the rest of it were based on these forecasts. And this black line is what actually happened, right? It flatlined. Now, the reason that it flatlined is something that economists argue about. There isn't a consensus about this, but there are a number of, I think, very clear reasons why it flatlined. One, and this is commonly agreed on by economists, when banks collapse in the way that our banks collapsed, um, they just find it difficult to lend to anybody, then they particularly find it difficult to lend to new businesses who might have productive investments. They also did something else. I know there's been a lot of publicity about the extent to which some banks treated businesses that were struggling very badly, and it is true. Some banks did treat, RBS is one that we all know about, treated some smaller businesses and medium-sized businesses very badly when they got into trouble. But funnily enough, compared to previous recessions, 
a lot of fairly mediocre businesses were kept going. Now, when mediocre businesses, well, you may have come across this phrase, zombie businesses, when zombie businesses are kept going during a recession, it means that capital, money, isn't freed up to invest in better businesses. And again, that happened. And then a third thing happened that made us all a bit poorer, and that was that companies who were chronically lacking in confidence after that great shock of 2008, chose to hire people rather than to invest in capital and kit. Now, one of the things you'll constantly hear from ministers is, isn't it brilliant that we have had such a rise of employment in this country since 2008? And it is true that, again, compared to previous recessions, that rise in employment was greater than we would have been, we would have expected. The problem, as you will know, is so many of those jobs are insecure jobs on short-term contracts and very low wages. One of the most powerful things that anybody has talked, uh, that I've talked about on my show on Sundays, the Archbishop of Canterbury came on and he said something which, with which I completely agree, that one of the greatest scandals of our time is in this explosion of food banks, the people who are using the food banks are not the unemployed. They are people in jobs who are simply not earning enough to have what most of us would consider to be a decent way of life. And that is the scandal of the way our economy has been operating. Now, to pull all that together, what we are living through is the equivalent, I'm going to use this again, this, this, this is sort of one of these economists' favourite phrases, called a repeat of what was called Engels' pause. Right? So Engels' pause was this period uh, in the early 19th century, early part of the Industrial Revolution, where we had growth, but the fruits of the growth were not shared with people, with the workers. Living standards fell and stagnated for, for actually an incredibly long time, decades. It took quite a long time for the Industrial Revolution to lead to higher living standards. Now, we have to go back as long as that to find a period in British history when living standards for people on average to low incomes have been stagnating for as long. And this, I think, is an absolutely shocking aspect of what's been happening. So, earnings, on average, won't return to their Q... This is effectively a proxy for living standards, to their peak, which was just before the crash, was in the third quarter of 2007, until the start of 2025. Okay? For, pe for, for typical people, this is the longest period of stagnating incomes since the early 19th century. So it's not surprising that we're living through a period of tremendous political upheaval. Um, and this is um, a very bad economist joke, if anybody can see this. It says Engels pause. Um, now, um, why have I put this here? I put this here because I wanted to get on to another point, which is also to look at one of the underlying causes of the fact that people in the middle and bottom are doing so badly. It's because the share of income that we produce as a country 
the way that it's divided has changed massively since the 1970s. So in this country, over that period, 13 percentage points of our entire income has switched from workers to the owners of capital, to shareholders and investors. Okay? And one of the, so I said earlier, there was this point about you can't pay yourself more unless productivity is rising. But the other thing that's been going on is that for every increase in productivity, more of the gains of, from that productivity has been going to the owners of capital, providers of the money, rather than the, the people who actually produce the stuff, the goods and services. And that's another reason why... What's another, it's not really a reason, that's another explanation of what's been going on in terms of the stagnation of incomes. Now, then you've got to ask yourself, what's caused that? Why has money, the share of the money we produce, shifted so much from workers to the rich, the providers of capital? And there are, you know, there are a number of different explanations. In the early period, in the period of Thatcher, which is when the, we got the biggest switch, I mean, it was a very obvious explanation, which is the unions were crushed. And when effectively workers have less power, they have less power to insist that they get a bigger share of the cake. So that's one of the reasons why uh, that happened. But it also happened again very strongly after the 2008 crash. Um, and it's less clear precisely why at that moment uh, there was this, again, this great shift from what the owners of capital, what the owners of, of um, uh, capital got, or rather to the owners of capital from all of us. Now, I, I, I've got some thoughts about what's, what's happening there, and I will come back to that in just uh, a minute. But there's just one other aspect of what one might think of as the unfairness of the way we run the economy that I want to touch on, which is that even, even in the way that we rescued the economy in 2008, the consequences were broadly seen rightly as unfair. Because in 2008, because these deficits ballooned, government deficits, the government itself abdicated responsibility for doing terribly much. And you all know that what happened across the Western world, in the Eurozone, in the United States and in Britain, governments turned to central banks and said, fix this for us. And they said to central banks, cut interest rates, slash interest rates, which happened. Cost of money went to zero. That was a deliberate attempt to push up the price of assets so that people who own houses, businesses with assets would feel more confident and they would spend and invest more. And it happened to an extent. The economy did recover a bit. But you will all know who benefits most when asset prices rise. It's the owners of assets. Actually, if you're my generation, it's people like me, because I happen to own, I'm lucky enough to own a house. The rich and the older generation benefited, but inequalities, old versus young, rich versus poor, widened, got worse, as a direct result of the way we tried to fix the economy. Now, I said I'd get back to this whole question of why the holders of capital were getting more in recent years. And uh, the, 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 uh, you know, there's a genuine reason why my favorite little bear is up there. Um, and the reason is this. It's because we are also living through 
an industrial revolution again. We talked about the early 19th century industrial revolution. We're living through another industrial revolution. This is a, an extraordinary industrial revolution because it's an industrial revolution in which relatively small numbers of people who can come up with an algorithm or a brilliant digital idea which can be turned into what's called a platform business can become wealthier at a rate of knots that we've never seen before. So at the turn of the 20th century and later, you would get the creation over decades of dynasties like the Fords. They would create tens and tens and tens of thousands of genuinely satisfying jobs all over the world, and whatever you thought of the Fords as individuals, nonetheless, they created meaningful work all over the world over a process of period of decades, investing vast sums of money. The Google boys were multi-billionaires within a couple of years of the creation of Google, and they are by no means unique. There are extraordinary numbers of these digital businesses where tiny numbers of founders scoop immense dynasty-creating rewards remarkably quickly. But the people who often work for those sorts of platform businesses, think of Uber, for example, are, tend to be in insecure, low-paid work. So you have an industrial revolution which disempowers workers and massively enriches founders. It's another reason why what's going on is perceived to be relatively unfair. Now, um, for me, this is the most important sort of chart in terms of understanding the world and the rise of populism, particularly in the West, and the rise of extremism. And I'll show you, I'll, I'll, I'll explain what it shows. So, I was somebody who thought globalisation was fantastic Thing. And the reason I thought it was a fantastic thing is because I spent 20 years going to China making films about the way that, what was, that globalization was enabling China to lift hundreds and hundreds of millions, about 800 million people lifted out of poverty in China. You know, it, it, quite extraordinary thing to behold. Cities rising before one's eyes, eyes you know, a, a, an amazing achievement. And it was impossible not to be impressed, bowled over by it. Um, and what this shows is that during the last 30-odd years, this is what's happened to the incomes of what we call the Asian middle class. It's not just China, it's, you know, parts of India, it's, you know, places like Vietnam, Korea, you know, astonishing rise in incomes as a result, as a result of globalisation, right? A very similar rise in incomes, 80-odd percent, by the top 1%, richest 1% of people in the world, wherever they live, right? This is what's happened to what you would call the British working class, uh, or, the, what, or what is in America called the American middle class. Middle cl American middle class is more, more or less the same as our uh, British working class, and the, these are people who work in manufacturing industry. And their incomes broadly stagnated over this period, as jobs went to China, to Korea, to India. Now, the question I ask you is, when, I mean, and this is the thing I fundamentally got wrong, bowled over by globalisation, 
obviously, you know, unemployment in Sunderland since the 80s and Middlesbrough reduced. What people, perhaps like us, like me, didn't notice enough was that when satisfying jobs are replaced by jobs in call centres or as taxi drivers, even if people are in work, they don't feel desperately grateful. They don't think the world is actually serving them terribly well. And if you, you know, you all remember that Monty Python phrase, what have the Romans ever done for us? Well, if you lived in Middlesbrough, the phrase, what has globalisation ever done for us? The, the right answer was bugger all. You know, it may have been transforming the world, but you didn't feel all that happy. But, you know, a peasant in China was better off if you've, if you've lost all hope both for your future and your children's future. Now, the other thing which I think, you know, and I'm, I'm, you know, we've got time, we'll get back to this, but I also think this is terribly important because these are the countries which have seen the greatest surge, okay, in the share of national income taken by the top 1%, taken by the richest, right? Where inequality has widened most. Now, in first place is that model uh, of how one wants to run things, Russia, right? Where inequality since, you know, the collapse of communism has gone up to the most terrifying extent. Second place, US, right? Third place, UK, and fourth place, China. An interesting thing in a country that calls itself communist, that inequality has increased so much in the last 20 years. Absolutely extraordinary. Now, I would just point out, Britain, we got Brexit, US got Trump, China has a dictator, Russia has a dictator, effectively. And, you know, where I'm going to be leading us is what is, I think, worrying, should be worrying, is when you have persistent inequalities of this sort, they tend to be only be sustainable when democracy collapses. And that's something we need to think about. So, let's just get on to that Brexit vote. And I, I've described it here, the Brexit vote, as the strangest coalition in history. Because the thing about it was, it consisted of older, on the whole, non-metropolitan people who owned their own houses, wealthier people, and they'd hated the EU, used to be called the common market, ever since we joined. At any point in the last 30 years, if they'd been asked to vote on it, they would have voted against because they, voted, they regarded it as somehow an attack on British values or English values or an ability to govern ourselves. Right? The sovereignty issue for them was paramount. And in a way, because they would always have voted for Brexit, I'm a bit less interested in them. The part of the coalition that is relevant and links into everything I've been talking to you about is that a majority of people who lived in council houses, of the unemployed, of people on low incomes in insecure jobs, majorities of poor people voted for Brexit. And they voted for Brexit because they associated the campaign to keep us in the EU with an establishment which had abandoned them, which had delivered to them years of stagnating living standards and showed no signs of recognising the extent to which they had lost hope and they had felt unrepresented and angry. And this is just you know, to, to demonstrate to you that 
The blue lines are richer people. Um, the red lines are poorer. And, you know, as you can see, there is a direct correlation. The richer you were, the more likely you were to vote for a Remain. The poorer you were, the, less, the, mo the more likely you were to vote to leave. Now, in Trump, what happened in terms of rich versus poor and the poor protest vote was even more extreme. Um, at, uh, because the other thing that's going on in America, and there's, there's signs of this happening in Britain, is that in the world's richest, most powerful economy, people are dying younger again, right? Mortality rates are rising. And the reason for that is because there's an absolute epidemic of drug addiction, alcohol addiction, obesity. These are desperate people. These are desperate people. Now, again, interestingly, a bit like our own weird Brexit coalition, if you lived in the Rust Belt of America, you were traditionally a Democrat supporter, you did not believe Hillary Clinton was speaking your language, you, she, you did not believe she was listening to you. A majority of white, we would call them working class, they call them middle class, people in the Rust Belt of America voted for Trump. Without them, he would not have won. So, and the whole point that we're trying to make here, which I'm sure you all appreciate, is that what's happened changes our world in a really fundamental way. I remember after 2008, I thought that there would be riots in the streets against bankers, and there was a bit of that, and, you know, we had the Occupy movement, and we had, you know, stuff in Spain, big demos in Spain, big demos in Greece. But what's happened through our democratic structures is much more significant, because what's changing is very hard to reverse. When people make a noise, you can buy them off. This is different. This is a significant political shift. Now, um, I'm going to slightly counter through, because it would be nice if, if we had a bit of time for questions, which I assume you, you, you know, you, is that a good idea? Should we, should we leave a bit of time for questions at the end? Yeah, good. Um, so I'm going to counter through now a bit of this. So what do I say, what do I mean by why did she sacrifice her only Trump in Brexit negotiations? So we've moved on, we've moved on, to the, we've moved on from the why of Brexit to the where are we going on Brexit. And the thing that I um, think was a very, very, very serious mistake that she made, the most serious mistake she's made, was triggering Article 50 before we had secured anything from the EU in terms of the structure of Brexit. Because once you have triggered Article 50, you have only two years to agree the most complex new set of arrangements that we've ever in this nation's history tried to negotiate. Um, and you do that with an EU, which has also got a lot of other things on its plate. Um, and we therefore handed all the negotiating power over to them, because they know, even if a hard Brexit might be painful for them, they know it's massively more painful for us. And so, as I say, it is, you know, it was just mad that in order to prove to her Brexit MPs and her Brexit members that she really was, as a Remainer, going to deliver Brexit, she announced that she would be triggering Article 50, before we had secured anything from the EU 
when it came to trade, or even the sequencing of talks. The fact that we even now haven't got on to serious negotiations about the most important things that matter to us. What will our future trade relationship be with the EU? What will our future security relationship uh, with the EU be? None of that has started because we triggered Article 50 and the EU said, you can't talk about any of that until you've agreed what you're going to pay us in, with a divorce bill. And by the way, until you tell us how you keep the border open in Northern Ireland. We still haven't worked out how to keep the border open between Northern Ireland and the Republic. You know, it is appalling how little progress has been made with just months to go before we're out. Um, I mean, this is just to repeat a point that was implicit in what I just said. And the problem for her, but it's also, some would say, a weakness of hers. The problem for her is she feels she's got to hold a very difficult coalition of interests together in her own party, the Remainers and the Brexiters. When I say there's a weakness on her part there, it is because her instincts tend to be, what do I do to keep my party together, rather than, what do I do that's in the national interest? And, you know, there will come a moment when I suspect the failure to put the national interest first will cause a very, very serious crisis for her and for us. Now, one of the underpinnings of the failure to make progress is the naivety of the philosophy underpinning the negotiating position. She keeps saying that our trade deal will be not based on anything the EU has ever done before because of our unique relationship with the EU. It will be special and different. And she expects the EU to bend, change, abandon some of its dearly held rules for how it does things. Now, there is, as the rest of the EU knows, an extraordinary paradox in all of this, which is those who led the Brexit campaign said the main reason we're doing this is to, quote, take back control, to increase the sovereignty of the United Kingdom. And we are asking the EU to give us a deal that are, increases our economic growth prospects at the price of an erosion of their sovereignty. That is the implicit thing we are asking them to do. And it's not surprising, again, to use another technical term, it's not surprising that they basically said to us, bugger off. Because why should they do us that, why should they do us that favor? Why should they do us that favour, particularly when there are other countries where we're seeing the rise of populists who are not keen on the EU? If, you know, if they cannot make it easy for us to leave, because if they make it easy for us to leave, they send a message to Five Star and La Liga in Italy that there is a different relationship with the EU that Italy could have, or to Marine Le Pen that actually, you know, there is an alternative way for France based on national sovereignty. They can't do that. Why does this matter for the UK? In fact, in some ways, Brexit would be worse for the UK economically than pretty much any other country in Europe. And the reason for that is because over 30-odd years since the single market was created, there's been one incredibly successful industrial policy 
of British governments, which is to go around the world and say to Japanese car manufacturers or Korean manufacturers or manufacturers in America, come to Britain for the low regulation, lowish tax base that gets you into the world's biggest market. And it worked spectacularly. We sucked in an enormous amount of foreign capital over that period. And now something like a third of everything we produce is made by big companies that are mobile, that can put their money in people anywhere. And so when you increase the costs and frictions of access to the world's biggest market, these people invest less and they hire fewer people. So getting this deal right, and it's very difficult to get this deal right, is vital to our economic future. And just to sort of give you just one, only one aspect of the costs, okay? If we go to these famous WTO rules, this is what happens to the price of an, you know, a whole range of different commodities, foodstuffs, goods, uh, 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 on the so-called most favoured nation status. So dairy products would rise 44 points. Uh, the, the tariff, sorry, would be sort of 45% and lead to an 8% increase in prices. 8% increase in price on oils and fats, meat 6%. Cars and the rest, 6%. Food, vegetables. Now, hands up. When the price of basic stuff goes up, who does it, who does it hurt most? The poor. The poor who have already you know, been suffering most. But, curiously, what I'm about to say, um, however, you know, crap Brexit might turn out to be. Funnily enough for me, the worst thing about Brexit isn't Brexit. Everything I described to you about what's wrong with the way we run the, the economy has nothing to do with the European Union, and it has everything to do with decades of economic mismanagement. Okay? What needs fixing in this country? A housing crisis, how to provide secure jobs for young people, how to, get, how to help young people save for the future, how to, uh, how to uh, address unbelievably grotesque regional inequalities, living standards in the northeast, more than a third lower than in London and the southeast. The wealth gap between the northeast and London, even greater than that. Okay? These are problems that have nothing to do with the EU, everything to do with our cohesion as a nation. Um, and the tragedy for me of Brexit is that Brexit is consuming every minute, every working hour of government and civil servants' attention. And therefore, what needs to be fixed about the UK is being deferred. Now, there's been quite a big health service announcement. And I think it's really important that the health service gets more funding. Of course it is. But the other problems, whether it's social care, whether it's the shortage of housing, we are a long way from seeing sustainable solutions. And we, you know, we might well talk a little bit about the, the meaning of the health service announcement when you've got a moment. Now, the other thing that, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, I often talk about at length, and we might again talk about this later, is the other problem with fixing all these problems, is we, were, we live in an amazingly complicated world, a world in which 
you know, he, for example, is massively explo exploiting the new digital uh, technologies to plant phony stories. We know uh, anybody who follows what's happening in US politics, the extent to which he interfered in the US elections. Uh, there is growing evidence of, of, of some kind of, I, I don't myself believe that, you know, the official Leave campaign was remotely in cahoots with him, but he is very good at sowing confusion and mayhem everywhere. And simply, if he, even without any of that, the fragmentation of media, the growth of social media has made the whole issue of um, how to communicate the truth that much more challenging. And it has also given new weapons to very, very, very canny political operators. Now, one of the more, one of the less remarked upon aspects of the EU referendum was the extent to which, let's put together the issue of whether or not they broke funding rules, uh, for example, and let's put to one side the whole issue of, you know, whether they benefited from data stolen by Cambridge Analytica or, or stolen is the wrong way to put it, but improperly obtained by, uh, you know, Cambridge um, Analytics. Put all that to one side, right? The fundamental point about the successful Leave campaign is that it exploited social media brilliantly. All their money went into social media. They exploited it brilliantly, and, and the other side didn't have a clue. It was broadly the, you know, a, a, a battle between, uh, you know, one side, Leave, who had exosets, and the other side, who had old-fashioned fashion, revolvers. And it was obvious to me, if you, if you were going in to a battle with both sides neck and neck, that the ones using the more sophisticated campaigning techniques were going to have a massive advantage. And so it turned out. Now, uh, very briefly, I'm just going to wrap up. So, he is a very, very, very interesting character. And... The reason I'm, there are all sorts of reasons why he's interesting. I mean, he's definitely modernising and reforming France. He, it's not clear whether he will succeed to the same extent uh, on the European stage. But he is the real deal. No question about it. In a world where money is mobile, the other problem we've got at the moment is the inertia that you see in the UK versus a country across the channel that appears to be modernizing relatively fast means that money, capital, is shifting from the UK to France. And it doesn't even have to, to happen on a colossal scale to start to bite on our relative economic prospects. That said, I wouldn't remotely argue that the EU is out of the woods. These are the two successful party leaders in the last Italian election. There's been a lurch to populism in Italy. This is sort of good and bad for the UK. It's sort of good in a way for the UK because it means the, the EU will have another period of agonising about what its future is. Um, and, you know, it, it makes the decision to leave the EU, for a period at least, look perhaps less irrational than it might otherwise do. The problem is that, first of all, when you've got a problem like Italy or indeed Spain, EU leaders are now much more focused on trying to make the EU work for them than about getting a good deal with us. And secondly... You don't want to give too good a deal to us, as I said earlier, because it only encourages them to ask for more. 
Now, finally, we're almost, almost at the end of this uh, joyous celebration of where we are. Um, I just, for those of you who say it's all fine in this country, you know, economy's still growing, it's all brilliant. Okay, technical phrase, bollocks. Um, <laughs> this, okay, is what's been happening globally and what is happening next, what is happening at the moment globally. There's been a surge in global growth, okay? We are back to boom conditions globally. Uh, that we haven't seen since before the crash, okay? It's largely to do with quite a lot of money that Trump is spending. Um, not necessarily sustainable, but there is, there is a global boom going on, right? Eurozone has benefited back to levels it hasn't seen for donkey's years. Before Brexit, we were growing at well over 2%. We were nudging up to 25 We are back to sub 1.5%, nudging 1%, and all serious forecasts expect us to be growing at that kind of level for more or less as far as the eye can see. We grew at 3% a year from 92 to 2007. We are now set on a path of one to one and a half as far as the eye can see. Now, you know, it's one reason why, you know, I do occasionally bristle when I hear politicians. Theresa May said today, you know, this uh, 30 billion of additional cash by uh, 2000, and uh, 23 4 for the NHS is a Brexit dividend, right? There are two reasons why that is ridiculous. One is, at best, at best, the Brexit dividend, when we stop paying into Brussels, will be about £100 million a week compared to the £600 million a week that she is promising to put in. Okay, so there's a £500 million gap which will come from higher taxes and from increased borrowing. But secondly, when growth collapses like that, tax revenues collapse. So whatever money we no longer pay into the EU will be more than offset by the reduction in tax revenue from the lower growth that we are experiencing. So, you know, if somebody says to you, thank God for the Brexit dividend, just use, as I say, another favourite economist expression, my arse. <laughs> um, now, uh, I don't... I, 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 God, I really am going to try and chew up today, aren't I? The, the thing about this, OK, so look, the other thing, just to bear in mind, and this is, you know, this is a subject for another couple of hours, so I'll keep it very, very brief. We are also going through, I talked to you about this industrial revolution we're going through, OK? It is extraordinary the extent to which um, jobs are being replaced by robots, by, art, by artificial intelligence. I spoke to the head of a, one of our leading accountancy firms the other day. You know, his dilemma is not whether algorithms work that could lead him to sack thousands and thousands of people. It's whether it's socially responsible to do that, right? That is the scale of the industrial change we are going through. So we are going through a stage where incomes are stagnating and even better jobs are being phased out by robots. Um, this just shows that the poor are getting poorer. Let's move on. Um, uh, okay, let's move on. Um, uh, right. Despite everything, and this is all right, this is my, we're going to wrap up now. So this is my big point, okay? And if I'm honest with you, this is what sort of keeps me awake at night and depresses me, okay? We had this biggest exercise in direct democracy 
that we've ever had as a nation. Right? Massive turnout. People voted to leave. Now, my own view is you are playing with fire when you do not follow through on that scale of democratic engagement by people, right? Even if you think people voted to self-harm, that is their choice. And, you know, I spend quite a lot of time going around the country and talking to people who vote Leave, particularly poorer people, and the thing that they are most surprised by is that we're not out of the EU yet, right? And although there is a bit of evidence from opinion polls that opinion is shifting a bit, it is not shifting seismically. And therefore, we are caught in this bloody vice, right, of if we don't leave the EU, millions of people who want us to leave will shout betrayal. And I said earlier about the association of inequalities with countries that are not democratic, that are run by bad people. And, you know, I fear the rise of extremism, the further rise of extremism in circumstances where Brexit is not delivered. But equally, I fear the rise of extremism if Brexit is delivered and poor people get poorer. And I just fear that our politicians are not enough aware of the dangers. Now, this is a bloke called Tommy Robinson, right? Some of you will know that he's been put in prison for something he did outside a court. Now, he is somebody who spends his whole life at the moment saying that Islam is a threat to our way of life. Now, one of the things that I found most extraordinary and disturbing is that after he was imprisoned, my inbox just filled up far more than for almost any other act, uh, sort of political event that's happened in recent years. Just filled up with people telling me they thought it was completely unfair that this bloke had been imprisoned. Well over 600,000 people have signed a petition saying he shouldn't be in prison. You know, the notion that, you know, our democracy and our way of life and our liberal values are safe is very much something uh, that we cannot take for granted. Now, these are, my book contains lots and lots and lots of prescriptions for how to fix all of this. And here they all are there. And you, we can buy the book and you can read about how to fix all this stuff. Because um, I want to take some questions. Um, but I'm just going to finish by reading a tiny bit from the end of the book. Because the book starts with a letter to my dad. And it's sort of appropriate, particularly given what happened today. So I'm just going to read this to you. So... My dad died a couple of years ago. You died in a great NHS hospital that was operating at dangerously close to full capacity from multiple infections you picked up while in the hospital. It was the worst, the most tragic luck. Your doctors were magnificent, so diligent, so expert, so hard-working. Shortly before you died, you made characteristic light of your perilous condition when you told the consultant physician that, as an economist, you could see that the marginal utility of trying to keep you alive was probably now less than the marginal cost. You broke my heart with that display of selflessness, humour and rationality, the qualities that defined you. They're also great British virtues, which is why the neither you nor I would ever give up on this country which we love. Dad, you'd be shocked, appalled, by how fragile it all feels. So, 
Please tell me, what the fuck do we do now? Um, so those of you who know me, I always overrun. I'm really sorry. We've got time for a couple of questions. Any questions? Yes. How many oh. people voted leave in this room? Wait for the microphone. No. He wanted to know how many of you voted leave. Do you want to put, are you brave enough to put your hands up if you voted leave in this room? Okay, a few of you. Right. Who, where have we got? There we go. Um, we're seeing a rise of um, interesting books. Do, um, donut economics comes to mind. Um, so, to, we're seeing the rise of interesting books. Oh yeah, economic books. Yeah, um, you'll be familiar with them. Donut yeah. economics is is probably the most um, yeah. uh, uh, catchy. Do you see any relevance in this? Do you see a methodology that we can get from where we are to any of these nirvanas? Or are we just um, buying books? <laughs> so, I, I've got sort of two thoughts on this. Um, one is, um, I think one of the sort of failures of modern democracy is um, that none of us are actually taught enough at an early enough stage, or at any stage, about economics. So we have these uh, debates. We have politicians tell us stuff. Quite a lot of what politicians tell us is just wrong. But we are not qualified to challenge that very often. Um, and I do think, actually, that, for example, a bit of really basic economics should go on the school curriculum for everybody. Because, you know, it's so important that we reinvigorate democracy. Now, one of the things you'll be very pleased about um, is that my next book is supposed to be all about explaining basic economics so that we can, you know, for, for citizens, so that we can all exercise our votes, uh, you know, in a way where we can be confident that we know that we're doing the right thing. But broadly, I mean, there are lots of actually sort of conventional, sensible things that we can do to fix this stuff. You know, the fixes on the whole don't have to be sort of newfangled rocket science. I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book, for example, is I firmly believe there has to be a shift from income taxes to wealth taxes. And the reason I say that is because wealth inequalities are much wider than income inequalities in this country. Secondly, there's a huge, if you look over 40 years, the amount that's been taken out of wealth as a percentage has fallen massively. Okay, they have been undertaxed for a long period of time. And thirdly, if I look at the fact that I've got a bit of wealth, it's not because I'm an investment genius, it's because I just happened to have been born in 1960. And I managed to buy a house in 1980, or a little tiny little flat in 1983, and you know, for next to nothing on a, you know, on a tiny mortgage, and I just reinvested the proceeds. It is my, any wealth I've got is basically a windfall, right? So I don't think it's unfair for people of my generation who own all the wealth, to pay a bit back, particularly to pay for our own bloody social care when we can't look after ourselves. Um, so I do think there should be more tax on wealth to basically help people who don't have big incomes if they've got a big bit of wealth. It would be an IOU. It would be rolled up. You would pay the tax. You know, if you levied it at a rate of 2% a year, you would simply pay the rolled up amount when you sold the property or when you died. Your heirs would pay it. Um, but the point about that is it's a guaranteed stream of 
income for the government. They can borrow at next to zero interest costs when they know the money's coming in. Okay? So, um, you know, there are lots of things we could do. One of the, another thing I talk about is when you replace so much reliance on the central bank to revive the economy by cutting interest rates, you've then got to have a form of decentralised central banking. So it's perfectly obvious that interest rates in the North East should be lower and there should be more money directed to viable businesses and homeowners in the North East than in London, where there's been a property boom. And actually, you know, it looks as though we may be heading for a bit of a property crash. In the, you know. So the fact that we don't have decentralised central banking is a problem. Anyway, lo lo lots of other fascinating and brilliant ideas in the book. Um, who, who, who'd, who'd, who'd like uh, another quick question? Where are we going? Uh, lady here. Yes, sorry. nice to have one from a lady. Uh, we seem to be lying on our backs with our legs exposed. Oh, sorry. It's um, rather a rude question. <laughs> <laughs> it's rather racy. <laughs> We're lying on our backs with our legs in the air, apparently. Yes, and with the wealthy in this wonderful stupor of nothing's, you know, matter, how can we get them to stop scratching their tummies with their legs in the air and get, to, get a shift on to get this country... Uh, sort of slightly more vibrant. I feel that we're so old-fashioned now in our attitude compared to France and Germany and, you know. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's, there's, a lot in, there's a lot in what you say. I mean, what we've got to rediscover is a collective purpose. I mean, you know, the thing, you know, there's so much, you know, that, you know, I think chills us all at the moment. Um, you know, whether it's that the language of hate is so dominant now in discourse, whether it's in, you know, on the social media, uh, whether it's in politics. You know, I, I, you know, five or six years ago, one of the things I took so much pride about this country was the tolerance. And so, it's just gone. Um, you know, and, and so, uh, but also... Look, I, I, you know, I, the, 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 when I come to Scotland and I say these sorts of things, I always sort of um, damage my book sales. Um, because, you know, you know, as it happens, you know, you know, although I completely understand why lots of Scottish people want to break away, want independence, you know, for me, it would be a tragedy. Um, because, you know, Scotland has contributed so much to my idea of what British culture is. Right? There's one period of history that sort of shapes so many of my values. It's the Scottish Enlightenment. And the notion that Scotland would not be part of the United Kingdom just fills me with horror, genuinely. But, you know, and I, I know this is a you know, decision for all of, all of you, which is why I, say I, I very rarely stray into this, as it were. Um, but Northern Ireland, because of the dangers on the border, you know, there is a shift of sentiment in Northern Ireland towards breaking away from the United Kingdom. The, 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 the forces pulling us apart at the moment, whether it's, you know, classes or nations, are terrifying. Um, and one of the things that is plainly the case in the kind of volatile world that we live in is that actually size matters. That little cells are useful in terms of, you know, it is important for all of us to feel we have an influence, but when it comes to the really big decisions, we need to get together and seek a consensus. So I'm calling on all of you to get together. Um, no, not back my new party, that would be an absolute disaster. Um, now, anyway, look, thank you so much for 
bearing with me. I've, it's been lovely talking to you. I just wanted before um, I say, I did want to say thanks. It's such a lovely festival. I wanted to say thanks to Alistair Moffat, Paul Ogilvy because they've been, it's so well organised and the people are so charming. So thanks for having me. <laughs>